You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 431 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall with the last episode, we looked at one of the most dramatic events of the battles for Chattanooga when Hooker's Federals stormed and captured Lookout Mountain on November 24, 1863. That evening, Ulysses S. Grant wired news of the day's successes to Washington. In response, he received telegrams from both Abraham Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, congratulating him, but still expressing concern over Burnside's situation up at Knoxville. Lincoln concluded his message by urging Grant to, quote, remember Burnside. Halleck was more emphatic, telling Grant, quote, I know that you will do all in your power to relieve him. Lincoln and Halleck both made their point that Washington would accept no dawdling when it came to Grant defeating Bragg at Chattanooga and sending aid to Burnside. Their prodding was hardly necessary since Sam Grant wasn't a man to dawdle. He knew what he wanted to happen the next day, the 25th, and by midnight on the 24th, once things had quieted down around headquarters, he began issuing the orders to make those things happen. Hooker was to move at first light, making sure that Lookout Mountain was cleared of Confederates. Then he was to cross Chattanooga Creek and head toward Rossville Gap in Missionary Ridge on the far left of the Rebel Line. Once there, astride the ridge, he would advance northward, rolling up Bragg's position the way he had on Lookout Mountain the day before. Grant still intended that Sherman would make the main federal effort, advancing south from the position he had seized at the north end of Missionary Ridge and roll up Bragg's position from that direction. Grant sent Sherman orders to begin his attack at daybreak. George Thomas was to stand by and hold the Army of the Cumberland in readiness to launch an assault that was intended only to carry the Confederate rifle pits directly to his front at the base of Missionary Ridge. Grant never intended for Thomas's troops to make a frontal attack on the ridge itself. In any case, with Sherman's troops rolling down the ridge from the north and Hooker's men advancing from the south, there would be no need for Thomas's force to attack the Confederate position head-on. All of that was, of course, contingent on the Confederates still being there on Missionary Ridge 
when the sun rose on the morning of the 25th, and Grant and the other federal generals weren't at all sure they would be. After the events of the 24th, many of the Yankee officers assumed that Bragg would take the opportunity to withdraw from his lines outside Chattanooga to avoid a further drubbing. However, you guys know what happens when you make assumptions. At 9 o'clock on the evening of the 24th, Braxton Bragg met with his corps commanders, now just William Hardy and John C. Breckinridge. Hardy was for retreating that night and getting out while the getting was good, but Bragg disagreed. While their present position might have distinct drawbacks, he thought that trying to get out now might be more dangerous than staying and fighting. Breckinridge agreed with Bragg and went further. He was eager to fight and declared that if the Army of Tennessee couldn't beat the Yankees in the position they now held on Missionary Ridge, then they could probably never beat them. Privately, Bragg may have had his doubts about the soundness of Breckinridge's judgment. After all, Bragg later claimed the former vice president was just then halfway through a four-day drunk. But in this instance, Breckinridge's opinion coincided with Bragg's, since Bragg also considered Missionary Ridge to be an all-but-impregnable defensive position. Besides, Bragg certainly realized that to order a retreat now would be an admission that the entirety of the late summer and fall campaigns, that is, all that had led up to the Battle of Chickamauga and the effort to retake Chattanooga, had all been for naught. And judging from the reaction in the Confederate press and from the Southern public on other occasions when Braxton Bragg retreated on the advice of his generals, to withdraw now from Chattanooga would likely be the end of Bragg's career, since there were probably limits to even Jefferson Davis's stubborn support. And so, all things considered, Bragg decided the Army of Tennessee would stay and fight. Having made the decision that the Army of Tennessee would stay and fight it out, Bragg issued orders that the Confederate soldiers, who were even then pulling out of Chattanooga Valley and up onto Missionary Ridge, would continue moving along the crest of the ridge all the way up to the north end, almost to Claiborne's position at Tunnel Hill, and there they would be added to Hardy's command. That meant that Breckinridge, with three divisions, would defend about two-thirds of the Army's new line, all of which was now on Missionary Ridge. Bragg invested just over half of his force in holding the other third of his front, which was Hardee's sector at the north end of the ridge. By assigning a majority of his force to Hardee at the north end of Missionary Ridge, Braxton Bragg showed a clear understanding of the threat that Sherman represented, not only to the Confederate position as a whole, but also to Bragg's supply line, that is, to the Western and Atlantic Railroad that was his connection to Atlanta. We were placed in one of the columns on the extreme right that marched around the Palisades of Lookout Mountain on the 24th of November. We marched around to the nose or point of the mountain and lay that night above the Craven House. Just before daylight on the 25th, 
General Whitaker came to our regiment and said, Colonel Barnes, have you an officer that will volunteer to carry your flag and place it on the top of the mountain? I said, General, I will go. Turning to the regiment, he said, How many of you will go with Captain Wilson? I could order you up there, but will not, for it is a hazardous undertaking. But for the flag that gets there first, it will be an honor. Five men went with me. I handed my sword to the color sergeant to bring up, and I took the flag and started, accompanied by Sergeant James Wood, Company H, Private William Witt, Company A, Sergeant Harris Davis, Company E, Sergeant Joseph Wagers, Company B, and Private Joseph Bradley, Company I. Those who have seen the awe-inspiring precipice at the top of the great mountain can realize what a serious undertaking was before us, not to mention our lack of knowledge concerning the Confederates. Dim daylight was dawning. We crept cautiously upward, clutching at rocks and bushes, supporting each other, using sticks and poles and such other aids as we could gather. At every step we expected to be greeted with deadly missiles of some sort from the enemy. But fortune favored us, and before sunup, I, in front, reached the summit and planted the flag on top of Lookout Mountain. Soon other detachments came up and congratulated me and my party, and we were the lions of the day in the Union Army. Captain John Wilson, 8th Kentucky Infantry, U.S., Whitaker's Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. The morning of Wednesday, November 25th, dawned clear, bright, and cold. By first light, intrepid Federals on lookout made the scramble to the top of the Palisades and unfurled the stars and stripes from the nose of the mountain, which drew thunderous cheers from their comrades on the slopes below and from the men of the Army of the Cumberland around Chattanooga. For the 140,000 or so men of the assorted Federal and Confederate armies in the lines around Chattanooga, this would be a decisive day. For many of them, it would be their last day on earth. A lot had been started the previous two days, and few of the soldiers on either side could doubt that matters were soon going to be decided one way or another. Having determined, as per his orders from Grant, that the rebels had, as expected, evacuated Lookout, Hooker moved his men out from their positions on the mountain around 10 a.m. on the morning of the 25th. His column marched briskly down the road into the Chattanooga Valley and toward Rossville Gap. Meanwhile, George Thomas, as ordered, held the troops of the Army of the Cumberland where they were, there in front of Missionary Ridge. However, on Sherman's front, nothing seemed to be that simple. Sherman enjoyed an overwhelming superiority in numbers, an assault force of 26,000 Federals against about 10,000 rebels in the divisions of Patrick Claiborne and Carter Stevenson, but the terrain greatly favored the defenders. In addition, Sherman, who was never a great battlefield tactician, was facing one of the best Confederate division commanders of the war in Claiborne. 
After halting the previous afternoon, Sherman had consolidated his foothold there at the north end of Missionary Ridge. Now, however, he was uncertain of the enemy's exact position after Claiborne's withdrawal the evening before, so he started the day by pushing skirmishers out in front to ascertain where the rebels were. The skirmish firing began at daylight. The woods soon resounded to a more or less continuous rattle of musketry while clouds of powder smoke drifted through the leafless trees. Finally, around 10.30, Sherman launched his assault, right down along the spine of the ridge as planned. However, only a single Federal brigade went forward. You see, to reach the Rebel line, the Federals first had to descend the hill they had occupied overnight, cross an open valley under fire, and climb another steep slope, up Tunnel Hill. The terrain made deployment difficult, which is why it was mid-morning on the 25th before Sherman was ready to attack. Even then, his assaults were piecemeal and poorly coordinated. The ridge top was hardly wide enough for the single brigade that spearheaded Sherman's attack, and it quickly ran into trouble. Brigadier General John Corse's Midwesterners drove to within feet of the Confederate breastworks, and at places even engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the defenders yet they couldn't dislodge the rebels. Course fell wounded, and his men pulled back a short distance to the lower section of the crest. Unfortunately for Sherman, Patrick Claiborne was at the top of his game on this day, here at Tunnel Hill. Claiborne smartly shifted troops around his hilltop position and skillfully judged when and where to launch limited counterattacks, often leading them himself. In the strong position the rebels occupied, only a very limited number of Federals could come at them at one time. Still, the Yankees surged forward again and again. Fighting raged around the guns of a Confederate artillery battery, but though all its officers were shot down and command devolved on a corporal, the guns remained in rebel hands. One of the Confederate defenders of Tunnel Hill counted six separate Federal charges, as the stubborn Midwesterners clawed their way uphill among the rocks and dried leaves and tree trunks. But at noon, the Texans and Arkansans of Claiborne's division were still holding firm. Frustrated by the lack of progress, Sherman rode forward to study the situation. As he sat his horse, surveying the enemy's hilltop position, the nearby Federal soldiers, hugging the ground for shelter, noticed his presence. This is no place for you, General, one of them called. The enemy's batteries are sweeping the ground with canister. And, indeed, it was a dangerous spot for so high-ranking an officer. But, nevertheless, Sherman stayed until he felt he had seen all there was to see from that vantage point, and then he rode off unscathed. After a lull of an hour or so, Sherman sent his men forward again, this time hitting Tunnel Hill from the northwest. His personal reconnaissance may have convinced him that the ridgeback was too difficult, and to be sure, it was no picnic, but the west face, toward which he now directed his efforts, proved little better. Throughout the afternoon, additional brigades of Sherman's Midwesterners, joined by Pennsylvanians from Howard's 11th Corps, charged repeatedly up the steep slopes, but could make no headway against Claiborne's skillful defense. 
Within his compact position on Tunnel Hill, the Irish-born rebel general could use the advantage of interior lines to shift units to threatened spots much more rapidly than the Federals could position themselves for new attacks as they struggled over the rough terrain and attempted to maneuver around the base of the hill. And whenever the Federals did seem to be making headway, Claiborne would make use of local counterattacks, sending his men dashing downhill to strike the Yankees and roll back their advances. Fighting surged back and forth around a cluster of farm buildings near the mouth of the tunnel until one of the rebel counterattacks succeeded in setting fire to them. Then, in mid-afternoon, a fierce series of Confederate charges finally succeeded in dislodging the Yankees, who had, for an hour or more, been clinging tenaciously to their hard-won gains on the slopes of Tunnel Hill. About 3 p.m., after almost five hours of trying and failing to crack the rebel defenses on Tunnel Hill, and after suffering nearly 2,000 casualties in the process, Sherman called a halt. He sent word to Grant that his men could do no more. Grant dispatched a two-word response, Attack again. Sherman obeyed, but only half-heartedly. A few hundred men from Brigadier General Joseph Lightburn's brigade were sent forward, but they were badly cut up, and soon the survivors were reeling back. There would be no more attacks. With the superior grasp of the terrain, careful planning, and a good deal of skillful upfront leadership, Patrick Claiborne had bested Sherman and given Grant's favorite lieutenant a bloody nose at Tunnel Hill. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. 
The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. According to Grant's plan, Sherman's attack was supposed to be the main federal blow that would crack Bragg's line on the 25th. But it was now obvious that Claiborne's Confederates weren't going to be dislodged from Tunnel Hill by any number of troops the government of the United States might care to throw at them. So far, this was shaping up to be an extremely frustrating day for Ulysses S. Grant. Grant wanted to turn one of Bragg's flanks on Missionary Ridge before sending George Thomas forward against the center of the Confederate line. Essentially, Grant wanted to have the battle half won before using Thomas. That's because Grant, as we've said, had little confidence in either George Thomas or the soldiers of the Army of the Cumberland, and he intended Thomas's move against the rifle pits at the base of Missionary Ridge to be very much a secondary effort on the 25th. With Grant wanting to turn one of Bragg's flanks, Sherman's failure on the Confederate right up at Tunnel Hill lent urgency to Hooker's advance against the Confederate left down at Rossville Gap. Hooker, for his part, had started out that morning, as ordered, heading for the Gap, and at about half-past noon, his lead division, Osterhouse's, had reached Chattanooga Creek, three-fourths of the way there. However, upon reaching the creek, the lead regiment, the 27th Missouri, discovered that the rebels had burned the bridge during their withdrawal to Missionary Ridge the night before. This was bad news for Fighting Joe. His This close to its mouth, where it emptied into the Tennessee River, and in the rainy season to boot, the creek was a significant obstacle. Not to put too fine a point on it, but Hooker was stuck. Osterhaus put his 70-man pioneer detachment to work, rebuilding the bridge. And once it was finished, Hooker decided to push all his infantry across first and leave the artillery and wagons for, lead, for later. But even then, his troops didn't move forward to cover the last mile of the march to Rossville Gap until 3.30 that afternoon, following a three-hour delay. Grant, who had positioned himself on Orchard Knob with George Thomas, pondered the situation and what to do about it. Grant had wanted to turn one of Bragg's flanks, and now, with the imminent capture of Rossville Gap, that seemed to be happening. But it was happening on the Confederate left flank, not the right, and it was Hooker, not Sherman, who was accomplishing it. In fact, Sherman's troubles seemed to be multiplying, since Grant could see rebel soldiers marching northward along the crest of Missionary Ridge. Grant assumed those men represented heavy Confederate reinforcements being sent toward Tunnel Hill. However, those rebels were actually just the Confederates who had been up on Lookout Mountain and stationed in Lookout Valley, and now, per Bragg's orders, they were moving on to Missionary Ridge. Not knowing this, and worrying that Sherman's stalled attack might turn into an outright defeat if substantial Confederate reinforcements did arrive at Tunnel Hill, Grant began contemplating proceeding with the next phase of his plan anyway— 
that is, sending Thomas's troops straight ahead to seize the enemy rifle pits at the base of Missionary Ridge. Grant could hope that such a movement, at the very least, would get the attention of the Confederates, and Braxton Bragg would be forced to prepare to repel an assault against his center, rather than reinforcing his right at Tunnel Hill, or reacting aggressively to Hooker's capture of Rossville Gap. Grant's original intention had been that an advance by Thomas's troops to the base of Missionary Ridge would happen at the same time that Sherman was rolling down the crest of the ridge from the north. But with Sherman unable to make any headway against the rebels at Tunnel Hill, that obviously wasn't going to happen. So now, Grant made the decision to have Thomas's force from the Army of the Cumberland, all four divisions worth, to advance to the foot of Missionary Ridge. Thomas himself was standing nearby on Orchard Knob, just a dozen or so yards away, surveying Missionary Ridge through his field glasses. For those of you who are already familiar with the course of the battle, you know what happens next, right? Those four divisions from the Army of the Cumberland successfully advanced to the base of Missionary Ridge, but rather than remain there, they continue their assault right up the slopes to the crest of the ridge, in yet another extraordinary moment in the Battle for Chattanooga that rivals the attack on Lookout Mountain for sheer drama. But just how that all came about has been a matter of some debate for the past 160 years. The burning question has always been, what exactly happened on the afternoon of November 25, 1863, that resulted in Thomas's men storming up the slopes of Missionary Ridge and capturing the crest and smashing the Confederate position there outside Chattanooga? A scholar and author, Brooks D. Simpson, notes that three times in 13 years, the distinguished Civil War historian, Bruce Catton, attempted to describe the course of events on November 25th. Three times Catton fashioned accounts of how Grant came to order Thomas to attack the Confederate center on Missionary Ridge. And three times he explained how the advance on the rebel rifle pits at the base of the ridge had turned into an all-out assault that drove the enemy off the crest and won a most improbable victory. And yet, in the end, even Catton had to confess it was impossible to reconcile all the accounts of how that improbable victory came about. Since Bruce Catton's several attempts to harmonize the different accounts of what happened that day, there have been others who have tried to make sense of it all. What did the Federal Division and Brigade Commanders understand their mission to be? Was the surge up the slope to the crest a spur-of-the-moment impulse, or was there something else behind it? Those are great questions, aren't they? Well, we hope you'll tune in next time as we look at what we think are the best answers to those questions. We don't mean to leave you hanging. Well, actually, we kind of do, since we hope you tune in next time. But it's just a little late in this episode to start to really dig into the story of what happened there on Missionary Ridge. So we'll just pick back up right here next time.
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Chattanooga Campaign, edited by Stephen E. Woodworth and Charles D. Greer. This is a collection of 10 essays that provide insights and analysis of various aspects of the campaign and battles for Chattanooga, from the Battle of Wahatchee to Lookout Mountain to Missionary Ridge. It's all here. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we bring the curtain down on this episode, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Constantine N., Dennis P., Ronan M., and Jonathan S., Susan S., Mike H., Rob S., and T.R. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.